Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Hello, this is Ken Root. Back in 2014, we had a memorable adventure. I was with uh, two other gentlemen on a trip to Africa. I'd never been to anywhere in Africa except uh, very up at the top area, almost uh, just across from Spain. I had uh, not experienced the culture's of South Africa, except meeting some people who had come to the United States, either from South Africa or from Zimbabwe, agricultural, for which I was always impressed. But this time, through the uh, encouragement of a mutual friend and business partner for uh, one of our group, we managed to be able to uh, give this a try. And for about a 10-day period, We were in three countries in very southern Africa. We were in South Africa, we were in Mozambique, and we were in Zambia, and just looking over into Zimbabwe across the Zambezi River. Maurice Clark was um, really a stalwart member of our group, and he joins me here on the phone. Also, Michael McLean joins me, who was our videographer. Maurice, to start with you, I knew that you were uh, a part of the effort by Steve Brewer and his Land Investment Expo and also his The People's Company uh, land efforts to get more information on places people can invest in farmland. And a few years before that, Steve had come up with the idea, which was he was amazing at doing this. He found a lady in South Africa by the name of Susan Payne, and ask her if she would come to his event at the end of January in Des Moines, and she accepted. She was impressive. She was very well-versed, and uh, he continued to correspond with her, and the man she uh, shortly after our trip married, and so he decided we ought to take another look at this and actually go to Africa and see if land investment for farmers might be a realistic thing. What's your perspective on the setup to go on this trip, Maurice? Well, um, I think the attraction for Steve and others was the fact that um, Africa, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, about the only place in the world that still has a, a an abundance of virgin arable farmland. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, the everybody recognizes that the world population is continuing to grow and our our need for more food is going to continue to grow over the years that it's a logical place to look africa was a logical place to look for that and not only that but um the land prices there are a fraction of what we expect to pay anywhere else so so that's what uh piqued our interest and that's why we decided to go give it a look 
Also traveling with us was uh, Michael McLean, who um, uh, is a videographer. And uh, at the time, I was uh, about uh, ready to marry his mother. And uh, he and I were not that well acquainted. We certainly never traveled together before, but he was in his mid-20s. And, and I proposed to him that he go with us. And uh, Michael, you did so. Uh, what's your take on the setup for going on this trip? Well, I think for me, it was somewhat sort of last minute um, because I believe that you asked uh, somebody else to go uh, in my place beforehand, but they weren't as willing to travel all the way to Southern Africa just for a little over a week. But uh, I had never actually had a, an assignment, uh, a videography sort of gig before doing this. So it was kind of my first experience uh, behind the camera uh, doing this type of work. But I have always loved traveling. Um, and so it was a, a great opportunity to kind of not only travel and learn about some uh, other countries and the more in depth about the potential land investment opportunities there, but also getting experience with videography and documentation. Well, Michael, actually, I lied to you about somebody else going. I just wanted to make it look like it was a bigger trip than it really was. So I got <laughs> okay. you into it. But you accepted graciously. And I knew you loved to travel. And uh, Michael is about 6'4", and uh, mid-20s at that time uh, in 2014, and uh, very capable with audio-video, just gotten out of school in Chicago. So the timing was really good uh, to take you along and not pay you anything except just give you the opportunity and pay the cost of your travel. Um, so let's begin here with that. Uh, Maurice, uh, it's a long way from here to South Africa. Absolutely. You're talking about uh, 20-hour flights, I believe, <laughs> something like that. You, you, you fly overnight. Um, it's one of the longest flight, one of the longest commercial flights there is, if I'm not mistaken. We flew out of Atlanta. Where did you fly out of? I was out, I went out of Atlanta as well. I think I was on the, I, were we yeah. not on the same flight? I don't remember for sure. I yeah. thought maybe we were. We were on the same flight. And Coos de Klerk and Susan Payne were the people that we were to meet in Johannesburg. And they took a flight from London directly south, if you look at a map, to Johannesburg. So Johannesburg, as I believe, is on the prime meridian. They flew almost directly south. So any of you listening, thinking Africa is way uh, east, uh, actually, it's way more south than anything else. You have to cross the Atlantic, make a hard right and go there. So that puts you in it. But Michael, your experience of us being in a coach and being on a flight that was um, way over 12 hours. The first time doing that, there's no way you can necessarily prepare yourself for it. Um, we also had the uh, added um, maybe challenge of figuring out what to bring to accomplish the task as far as the equipment goes. It was we had a lot of preparation and planning uh, to figure out this is what we needed or this is what we could get away with or uh, and eliminating anything that would be, I guess, a, a travelsome burden to be able to be that mobile, but yet 
get quality documentation. Well, in my efforts to travel around the world as a reporter, that was always the big challenge. And uh, being able to have what you needed and being able to move with it, depend on it, and then bring the visual and audio product at home is is always a, a moving target. But it's more that you will it to be at times than the equipment uh, cooperating with you. But you did so. We were able to come back with, with video. We were able to tell the story when we... Uh, went to the event in January that Coos and Susan also were a part of. Let's talk about them to begin with here and the travels that they led us on through this trip. Uh, Maurice, do you want to go first in any of your description of Susan Payne and Coos de Klerk? Well, um, as you mentioned, um, Susan uh, headed up a, she she headed up a, a corporation that uh, was involved already involved in farming in in Africa, and and Kuz was a native of Zimbabwe, and he was v- well familiar with uh, farming in Africa. So they were a good team for us to follow around, um, and they they actually, like you mentioned, mentioned uh, they uh, met us in, J- in Johannesburg and basically gave us a what six or seven day tour of those three countries. We, we visited a number of farms and. Um, uh, uh, they entertained us as well. Um, um, but, uh, we, um, you know, we spent the week, um, just, uh, learning all, all that we could about, uh, farming in Africa. Coos himself, as you pointed out, was from Zimbabwe and his last name de clerk is of interest to me because, uh, in talking to him and references he had, even there was a book that was written about his family. He was, uh, a relative of, um, the de Klerk, who was the last prime minister uh, in the apartheid era of South, South Africa. So um, that was a, a positive in South Africa in its own time, but it was a negative in the fact that his family had been a part of an effort in uh, Zimbabwe after it moved from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. They were very large farmers, as we understood it. They had an effort to try to get a new president into the country to replace uh, Mugabe uh, because they thought he was very corrupt and uh, was very much wanting to take their land away from them. And as Coos de Klerk told us, they failed in that effort because of whatever reasons that um, they did not win the election and so they basically lost their farm shortly thereafter. Michael, you had your ears open all the time. Tell me your take on what Coos described as his time in, in Zimbabwe and what happened to his family. Well, it seemed, well, I, I guess another interesting note uh, is not only his last name, but kind of his father having a pretty strong reputation in the country, kind of a national hero. I believed he was a part of the Rhodesian uh, national rugby team. Um, And so him and his brothers had, you know, a lot of reputation and recognition on top of uh, kind of managing a large agricultural enterprise in the area. And what it made it seem like was, you know, they were a large employer or from where they were living. It seemed like what happened when 
the Mugabe regime took over or wanted more control over potentially the production of uh, food or other resources, that they just became a target um, and was basically invaded with the militia and uh, was held at gunpoint. And basically what happened to all of the, the family is that they kind of had this diaspora into the surrounding nations to kind of rebuild uh, and to start their own industries in other countries. One of the things that I have found, I mentioned in the opening, the number of these people from Zimbabwe, very educated, white people, that were thrown out of their country were all over the world. And you find them in Kansas State University, you find them at Oklahoma State, you find them farming in, in lots of areas. Um, Maurice, I saw them as uh, this unbelievably talented bunch who were just thrown to the wind, and Coos was one of them. Absolutely. It's really a sad story because um, prior to, uh, you know, Mugabe um, basically absconding these farms, uh, Zimbabwe or the former Rhodesia was known as the breadbasket of Africa. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were they were one of the largest um, or most productive farming countries in all of Africa, if not the most. And then after this happened, after the uh, white farmers were all expelled from the country, the industry itself collapsed, and uh, they've never been even they've never been able to to uh, even approach uh, the the previous production at all. I believe one of the things that Coos said was that his family farm uh, was selling directly to Europe much of the production that they had and that their monthly output from the farm was worth about a million dollars at its prime. And Mugabe uh, started to uh, let them know that they were going to lose that because he was going to give it back to the people. He was going to give it to those who supported him. And so uh, uh, when they lost it, they assumed it would go to little bitty pieces and be broken up, and many, many people would settle on it. As it turned out, according to him, Mugabe gave it to his minister of agriculture, who never broke it up and continued to uh, keep the land, even though its productivity dropped substantially. Do, can either of you confirm my memory of that? I think you're right. I think that's exactly what happened, yes. Well, from that, let's talk about this relationship of the um, traditional farmers uh, they're white farmers in South Africa and uh, other countries around the area, primarily, uh, as we mentioned, moving up to Zimbabwe and Zambia. But in South Africa, uh, one of our first stops was at a farm where we got to see their productivity. Uh, their peanuts uh, were the thing that caught my eye. Maurice, can you take us through that October 6th, uh, what we did to look at that area and the people we talked to? Uh, I remember speaking with the farmer. Again, we're, we're in South Africa now. And, um, you know, and South Africa, of course, has, has an um, interesting history. It was only back in around 1990 that Nelson Mandela was 
was released from prison after some 25 years in prison or whatever, and subsequently became the president, which is really a remarkable story. But anyway, um, when he when that happened, when this when the the minority white population lost power, um, they they also became there was a lot of concern about you know well is the same thing going to happen here in South Africa as what happened in Zimbabwe. In other words, is the government going to take away our farms? And I remember the farmer that we spoke to there, he, you know, he, he had that concern, even though it was some 20 some years uh, after uh, the transfer of power, uh, there was still a lot of nervousness on the part of white farmers in South Africa. And um, he, I remember him telling us, that uh, you know there, that that concern always existed. There, there. In fact, there had been, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, there had been some white farmers that were actually killed um, in some cases. And and so I remember, you know, the farm his farming operation was was impressive. I remember it was it was you know it was fairly modern and and he he was doing well. But but he was he was I think he was nervous. And I remember when we we looked at that, I remember thinking that you know. Um, th- th- there's huge potential here, but do we really want to get? Do we really want to jump into this um, uh, situation? You know, this is really volatile, and it was. It, I was. I was a little bit frightened. Let's pause for a minute to talk with Taylor Parker, who is the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, is there a link between those people who have a type of diabetes and a potential for hearing loss? And the answer is yes. If you are a type 1 or a type 2 diabetic, you're twice as likely to have a hearing loss. If you're a pre-diabetic, you're 30% higher than those with, you know, normal levels of glucose. Think about, you know, our body being all connected. You know, everything interacts, everything works together, and proper blood flow is is required and, and it helps keep a cochlea. The cochlea is a tiny little snail looking um apparatus that is part of the hearing process. Inside of the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs that need to be in good condition to get a proper signal to the brain from the ears for hearing loss. When you have high glucose levels, we lose the elasticity for our vessels and proper blood flow. They shrink and and we can't get that good proper uh, blood flow up to the cochlea as as well as you know all the other extremities in our body when you know when our feet things like that and hearing loss is the second leading health epidemic in the United States only behind heart disease everyone talks about all these other conditions heart disease is very similar in in the standpoint of proper blood flow all those things so diabetes has that huge piece whether you're type one, type two, or even pre-diabetic has a huge role in good hearing or having a, you know, potential untreated hearing loss. Thank you, Taylor. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. Call them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Hello, this is Ken Root talking about a trip that we took through Africa, the southern three countries of Mozambique, South Africa, and Zambia, in 2014. South Africa, as you mentioned, was has a long history, settled by Dutch and many others. There's a number of swirling nationalities and languages there. 
of which coups spoke uh, at least three, Afrikaan, uh, and uh, of course he spoke English. I think he spoke Dutch, and uh, he spoke at least one tribal language. Michael, do you Swahili. remember that? Swahili, I think. And I think there was another one that was more local to the Zimbabwe region that he grew up. Um, and maybe even, you know, just a, a maybe more intermediate or beginner level uh, of others, just because even where we went to visit his brother, that's in Mozambique, and they speak Portuguese. <laughs> so it's a very, a land that has been for, or turned into a very, uh, a mosaic of cultures throughout its history. So that adds to, I guess, the sort of complexity of the the structure um, of how uh, people and business gets conducted. One of the things I found interesting about him was that he was getting cell phone calls from people and uh, he was doing some business in the area and he would look at who it was on his phone and answer in their language. And uh, he switched languages, uh, you know, like we turn a page of a book. And it was just very impressive how that that occurred. That's not the only country in the world that happens in Brazil as much the same way. But when we talked to uh, Gerhard Dreyer, who was the farmer that uh, Maurice was referring to, um, the thing that impressed me the most as a person in agriculture, the only area I truly understand, he showed us through his peanut processing facility. Peanuts are a an African crop. They're ground nuts. Um, they're more of a of a dry climate is what they prefer the best. But we've improved them, and peanuts are eaten worldwide. And so there was a strong demand for the peanuts he had, especially if he could get them whole, shelled and whole to Europe. Well, what I saw was as they brought the trailers in, they had a large number of tribal African women there um, that were sorting out the hulls and the stems as the peanuts were coming in. And I recall that they were in an area that um, was uh, factory-like, and as they finished their part of the work, the peanuts then moved into an area that looked like it was any peanut processing facility in the United States. It had technology that was using an electric eye, if you will, to scan these nuts, uh, to move them through with pneumatic tubes, and to bring them to the far end of this to where that they were in the best shape possible. And in talking to him, he told me that he had to hire 80 people to do work for him on that farm for him to remain there. There's the key, as Maurice was saying, about this relationship and I said, 80 people. And he said, well, it was 400 just a couple of years ago. So he still had to hire those 80 people to do these tasks that could have easily been done by machine. But his output to me was as impressive as anything you would see in a modern peanut processing facility in the United States. Maurice, you want to comment on that? Well, I don't have a lot to add. I do. I remember, uh, like you said, being in that building, there was uh, conveyor belts back and forth, and the the women were seated on both sides of the conveyor belt, watching the peanuts go by, or or, or doing what, or, or sorting them, or whatever they do. And yes, there was 
uh, in that room, I remember there there probably was uh, maybe 50 people at one time in there on uh, all, all along these conveyor belts. Well, let's uh, talk about heading back to Johannesburg, because that night we stayed at uh, a guest house. Your take on the people that we stayed with, they were very colorful. They were very gracious to us, but uh, they were they were kind of concerned about what we were doing there. I think I, what I remember most from staying with those people was that they were mostly concerned about the potential for newer or uh, resurgence of like certain political ideologies that were reminiscent of what the apartheid looked like kind of radical. I think it was, I think they were talking about radical right wing um, political uh, parties and uprising in the country. I, I just remember them having a very like worried, cautious tone about political climate of the country. Yeah, that's exactly what I saw. And they were, you know, wanting to know what we were going to be doing. And uh, they weren't critical of us. They were just saying, why would you want to come here and put your assets into this land? And I saw the wheels turning in your head at that point, uh, Maurice. I think I remember that, of whether or not this was a good idea for us. And I think they were being totally honest with us. But they had a certain fearfulness. you could tell by the way that people had protected the outside of their houses. And then as we got to look at Johannesburg itself, and we drove around part of what I think was the Soweto Township, which is a slum area in that city, uh, it, it kind of frightened me as well of just what kind of environment that they were in. Now, between then and now, nothing of major change has taken place. We'll have to say that in in these nine years since, but it did seem to me an uneasiness existed among the people there. Maurice? Oh, absolutely. And I think that same uneasiness uh, prevails even today. There's, there's just, there's, there's a faction of the population of the, of the black population that believes that they deserve to be uh, compensated for years of oppression and um, and that's, it's, a, it's a sizable portion of the population that believes that way. Then there's probably an, another equally sizable portion that thinks, no, that's, you know, that, that that's not going to get us anywhere. But but and then there's the white population kind of waiting to see what happens. Um, but the, it's still you know, it's not it's not stable yet. It's uh, they're still sorting through all this. And so, yeah, there's every reason to be concerned still. Well, the next day we were. Uh to go to uh, uh, Mozambique, and um, we uh, had a curiosity with uh, Susan and Coos that uh, while we were riding in a car, she said, you know, I don't think that you can get a visa at the border anymore, and uh, we're going to take the bus all night up there, but you guys are going to fly and uh, you better check to see if you can uh, get on an airplane. Maurice and Michael, you guys carried us through that next day. Maurice, you start. Michael, you follow. What do you remember as we uh, tried to go to the airport, tried to get on an airplane, and took it from there? We had uh, airplane reservations uh, early in the day, as I recall. We went to the Johannesburg airport. We we got in, uh, in the line, and when we got up to the to the counter, we were told, we were asked for our visas. 
And we said we didn't have visas. We, we, we intended to get them at the border, which is, which is often the case or, uh, in, in many countries in Africa. They'll allow you to get the visa when you land in the country, which is what we later did in Zambia. We were told, no, you can't do that. And there was just no yielding to that. So they said, you have to get the, you have to have the visa before you leave. So we were not able to get on the flight. We sort of panicked. <laughs> we weren't sure what we were going to do. We ended up doing an emergency car rental. We rented a car right there in the airport and we drove to Pretoria, which is the capital of South Africa. And it's about maybe one hour away or maybe less than an hour away from uh, Johannesburg. So we drove frantically up to, um, Pretoria, and we went to the uh, embassy of Mozambique. We we went inside and spoke to a woman, and we explained our situation. Told her that we had we int- we were going to Mozambique uh, to do some business, and we needed visas, please. And then informed us that fine, you know, fill out the application, and we'll have it for you in a couple of days or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which was not going to work, of course, because we, 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 we couldn't afford to wait for two days. We needed to be there. We actually needed to be there that very same day. We had people waiting for us. So uh, anyway, we went back and forth, and um, she wasn't uh, going to give in. And uh, I don't know. We, we, dis- we, we discussed back and forth several times. I told her that you know we were, we, we were not going to be able to go if she didn't let us have those visas. We weren't going to be able to go at all. Um, and finally, uh, um, we were about ready to give up. And, um, and then I, 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 I had this, I had this crazy idea. I thought maybe, well, um, I, you know, uh, I, I was going to do it the African way, which I'm not sure if that's really a fair characterization, but that's what I thought in my head. I thought, you know, I'm going to see if she'll take a bribe. You know, this is, we've heard of these stories before. So I kind of hinted at, I never, I, I didn't come right out and say I was going to bribe her, but I, I, I think I might have said something like that. How much, you know, how much do we need to pay to get this done? And to my surprise, she um, she she didn't accept that. But but after s- some more uh, begging from us, she finally agreed to grant us the visas that day. And so she told us come back in a couple hours and she'd have them for us. I'm not really sure why she changed her mind, but it was a uh, it was it was great that she did because. Uh, we were finally able to get out uh, later that day and get onto Mozambique, but we did lose a full day in you know trying to get these visas. Add some color to this, Michael. I think another portion of this after we had initially spoke to the woman was that a part of the application was we needed to get passport photos. And so we had to find a place where someone could take our picture. Um and so I looked it up online uh, just with my cell phone, like if there was any place in Pretoria that could do that. So we had to leave the consulate, go to this passport photo place. This, I believe the guy took our pictures outside, like in front of the store with a, just a regular digital camera. We got all of our photos taken uh, by, and uh, brought it back. And she uh, uh, included that in our applications. And yeah, I think I think our persistence to get this done immediately somehow warmed her up to it and was able to expedite it for us. It did seem a little bit <laughs> uh, sketchy, I guess, to, to kind of do that to uh, to a government worker, but 
it ended up working. Uh, I also remember that even when we did get our visas and return back to the airport, we so we had the option. There were a few more flights to get to Maputo, the capital. The second last flight of the day was canceled, uh, which we wanted to take. And so we got on the last flight there. Um, and it was only about an hour or so flight, very short flight. They sprayed the plane. This was, uh, I guess, also the context for this entire trip was that the Ebola crisis was happening in uh, Western Africa. So that was also kind of maybe an extra bit of concern with traveling in the continent. Um, but when we landed, it was the presidential elections in uh, Mozambique. So where everything for the day, our itinerary had to be changed because we were technically missing it a day and we weren't able to get as far as we wanted to. But there were no hotel reservations, uh, no vacancy in the entire city of Maputo. So we had to drive outside of the city for about an hour or so to stay in some roadside little cottage. That's what I remember. Well, both of you described this um, in detail, and it's one of those days that uh, you dread having in a country that you don't understand. But, uh, Maurice, I do think that you had the character to convince this lady of what was the actual truth, and she took that and... Uh, we were able to get those visas, get out of there, get on the airplane. But there was an undercurrent here that we still didn't understand much, and that was why that Coos and Susan did not stay with us, did not fly with us, but took an overnight bus, and they already had visas to get into uh, to Mozambique. So we found them once we got there, and uh, we began to proceed on through I wanted to make one comment here that during the time that we had this trip, Maurice, you were placed in a position to drive a vehicle. And here we are in South Africa, which they drive on the left side of the road. The vehicle that we had, as I recall, had a shifter in the middle and you were sitting on the right side. You were remarkable at being able to drive that and drive that safely switching over from the way it is in the United States. Well, I, yeah, that, yeah, it was, it was actually kind of fun. I, I had, I had some experience doing that because I had, I, I uh, at some previous trip, I think to the UK or something, I had rented a car. I've also, I also had driven in Australia, which is also, on, you know, on, on the uh, left-hand side. So I had done it before, but yeah, that was a fun experience. I enjoyed that. We went on out to uh, see the farm and uh, see the countryside in Mozambique. And uh, that country was ravaged uh, in the 1980s and 90s uh, when AIDS uh, came through Africa. There were many, many people who died in that country. And the people that we saw generally were just living right there in straw huts on the dirt. Um, I could not believe the poverty that we witnessed as we were getting to the farm. And the farmstead itself, where Koo's brother was, uh, was also pretty desolate looking, um, although the house was comfortable. How did both of you take the drive through Mozambique and uh, seeing the landscape and then seeing what they offered was a good place to have cattle? Uh, Michael? The one thing that really 
stood out to me there that we get got to see was uh, sort of foreign investment to land property um, in Africa. We saw a bunch of Chinese development, um, them buying certain uh, oceanic front property. Uh, I think, I don't know too much in detail about how these deals were structured, but it seemed like that they were coming in to invest or build, build their infrastructure in exchange for prime real estate, for example. Uh, and maybe they have more vested interest in agriculture and using uh, their land to grow China's food or something like that. That was yeah. something that stuck out to me. No doubt about that. They were investing in building infrastructure for them, which would give them the uh, entree into being able to do other things. And we felt like, and I still believe, that the Chinese want to establish a food supply that they control outside their own country uh, and continent and be able to ship that in. Uh, so they s had spent a lot of money. We saw this as we came back to Maputo, as I remember it, uh, in the car that, uh, that evening. Due to the Internet connection cutting off at this point, it's going to be me wrapping up the story over the next few minutes. We looked at a dry land ranch and some zebu-type cattle back in that 2014 trip. We stayed the night at the ranch home of Ku's brother. His housekeeper cooked for us, and we had a delightful time. He said there was need to pay attention to the lethal nature of wildlife. He had killed a black mamba snake in a tree in front of the home. Maurice, Michael, and I made it back to Maputo in Mozambique, where we had lunch with the de Kirk brothers in town, and then caught our flight back to Johannesburg and on to Zambia. That country is much more set up for tourism, with Victoria Falls as a main attraction. We stayed in a magnificent guest house on the Zambezi River, while Coos and Susan stayed with the owner at his home. Michael and I took a boat ride down the river and saw an abundance of African wildlife. The opposite side of the river was Zimbabwe and a national park. The river was full of dangerous animals, crocodiles and big-toothed fish, but also hippos, which are very dangerous, as the males will charge and sink a small boat. We also saw foraging animals along the shore in the most safari-type tour of the entire trip. Off to see a farm the next day, and it revealed a lot about the area. The farm was on the Zambezi River, just a few miles upstream from Victoria Falls. The land appeared to be fertile, but poorly managed. We really never got a good explanation of Susan's Corporation's ownership, nor the farmer who seemed to have taken it over against their will. It had a large irrigation system that pulled from the river, but it had been damaged by a flood. We saw a cornfield that Coos said was attempting to produce a hybrid. The stalks were dry and standing, but there were no ears on them. He explained that the timing of the planting was wrong and nothing was produced. We went to the home on that land, and it was a very large and ornate place. Much of the furniture was carved from native tropical trees, and even the sign for the farm, called Kalanga, was ornately carved. The asking price was well over two million U.S. dollars, which Maurice thought was considerably overpriced. We met some of Ku's friends who showed us their productive farms. Wheat was being harvested, and it was yielding a very big crop. 
Of interest was the conflict between farming and wildlife. Elephants often crossed the land. They came in at night and ate what they could. Coos showed us a dent in the hood of his friend's truck that came from an elephant charging it. We ate with this family in a home that was mostly open and outdoors in a delightful dry climate. They had several dogs to alert them of any approaching wildlife. The final day was spent at Victoria Falls, an amazing geographic change in the river where the water plunged hundreds of feet off several different cliffs. In the middle of the river was a pool that was also at the edge of a major drop. It was open to tourists going out in a boat and getting into it and then looking over the abyss and getting their picture taken. The cost was about $150 to do so. We did not. Then back to Johannesburg, Maurice headed home, and Michael and I took three more days to go to Cape Town on the southern tip of the continent. We hired a driver to take us to the Cape of Good Hope and touch the southern tip of Africa. We also stopped at wineries that had some exceptionally good red and white wines. We brought home a few bottles that are not sold in the U.S., Michael and I then took a long, long flight back home, three different flights to get back to Iowa. We edited the video, and I presented it at the Land Investment Expo a couple of months later. At that event, Coos and Susan came and talked about investing in Africa. We have not heard of anyone choosing to do so from our group. The main guest of that day was Donald Trump who was ready to declare his candidacy for president in late January of 2015. And yes, I pulled his hair at his request. We had an evening dinner at Harry Stein's barn in Des Moines, and the next day I married Michael's mother. Thank you to Michael McLean and Maurice Clark for participating in this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly would go back to Africa again, but I'd pick the places that I visited and make sure a reputable tour company was leading me. A safari would also be a great thing to do. If you'd like to subscribe to these podcasts, you can click the appropriate button and you'll be notified each time we publish another one. Have an adventurous day.